Let me ask you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. And as we come now to this chapter, the adventure is about to begin in earnest. The stage has been set. Moses has been called by God to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. Moses is to go before Pharaoh with Aaron at his side and is God's messenger. He is to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. So what is going to happen? How will God's people be delivered? This morning's sermon is entitled, A Difficult Start. Because as is often the case with the best of adventures, everything does not go swimmingly at the beginning. At the end of chapter 4, things seem to be going well. The people of Israel have embraced Moses. They are ready to follow his lead. By the end of chapter 5, we will see the leaders of Israel turning against Moses, even calling for God's judgment to come down upon him. By the end of chapter 5, we will see Moses discouraged before God, confused, brought to a very low place. But of course, this difficult start is exactly what God had intended so that His great power might be seen. So let's begin with Exodus 5 and verses 1 through 9. And as we read these nine verses, remember that every time you see the word LORD in all capital letters, it stands for the name of God, the name Jehovah. Yahweh. Beginning in verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, make, that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. And so here, for the first time, 
the two fighters are brought into the ring. On the one side, there is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel. And on the other side, there is Pharaoh, a God of Egypt, ruler of Egypt. And what we find in this first scene is that Pharaoh is sneering at his opponent. He does not yet understand who this Yahweh is that he is up against. Now, how in the world did Moses and Aaron get access to Pharaoh? How were Moses and Aaron able to just walk right up to Pharaoh and say what they said? Well, the answer seems to be that they did not come alone. Back in Exodus 3, verse 18, God instructed Moses to take with him the elders of Israel to confront Pharaoh. This is likely why Pharaoh says in verse 4, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Standing around Moses and Aaron are all of these leaders, likely some from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. This was quite a delegation that has come to Pharaoh. And what was their request? Well, here we see a difference in what God had commanded Moses to do in chapter 3 and what we actually see him do here in chapter 5. That is, in chapter 3, God had used gentle language. Remember what God commanded Moses in Exodus 3, verse 18? He said, You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And we noted back in chapter 3 that that was astounding language. Omnipotent God, before whom Pharaoh is a tiny flea, commands Moses to ask Pharaoh's permission for a three days journey and even commands Moses to say, Please, Uh, remember, we discussed back in chapter 3 that we have archaeological evidence that ancient nations would sometimes allow enslaved peoples to leave for a period of time to worship their gods. So what we have here is God showing patience and forbearance and tenderness towards Pharaoh. God does not begin with the hardest command. God does not begin by saying to Pharaoh's entire force of city builders, let them go free and never come back. That's not the first command. God begins gentler than that. In fact, if we look at what God commanded Moses to say, we see that it isn't even a command Moses and the elders were to bring to Pharaoh a gentle request. The request doesn't even come from God directly, only indirectly. They are to tell Pharaoh that God has given them a command, and they're asking Pharaoh's permission for them to obey the command that God has given them to make this journey and to worship. Mount Hermon, I think God is 
often far more gracious and tender towards His enemies than we often realize. God is slow to anger. This story doesn't start out with swarms of locusts and hail falling from the sky. It starts out by Pharaoh being given a real opportunity to do the right thing. And it is only as people rebel against God and act in sin that God begins to respond with greater and greater severity. On the last day, no one will be able to say that God is being unjust in condemning them to hell. As with Pharaoh, God will be able to show how he was slow to anger, how he was full of patience, but people would not turn to him. They would not listen to him. But what do we find Moses actually saying in chapter 5? Well, at the beginning, rather than coming with a gentle request and saying, please, we find Moses coming before Pharaoh with an almost abrasive kind of confidence. Maybe Moses is soaring high in his own heart and mind because of how the people of Israel have embraced him when that wasn't what he expected. Maybe everything has gone so well since he arrived in Egypt, he's just assuming that this is going to go well too. But for whatever reason, the first words we have from Moses is that he, in the name of God, demands that Pharaoh let the people go. Instead of starting out gently, he goes straight for the jugular. Basically, everything is put right out on the table from the very beginning. And here's the issue. Whose people are they? Who do the Israelites belong to? Do they belong to Pharaoh? Or do they belong to God? And you see how Pharaoh responds in verse 2. Who is Yahweh, the Lord, that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, one of two things is happening there. One possibility is that Pharaoh has heard of Israel's God, Yahweh, but he considers him a puny God, a lesser God than himself. When he says, I do not know the Lord, he means Yahweh is not one of my gods. He's a foreign God. He's a God I do not regard. The other possibility is that true religion had fallen so low in the 400 years that Israel has been in Egypt that Pharaoh really might not have ever heard the name Yahweh. This name means, I am who I am. And we've seen before that in Egyptian, that was a title that Pharaoh claimed for himself. But here comes Moses speaking of this other God, a Hebrew God who claims to be the I am. And Pharaoh is unconcerned. Pharaoh responded as anyone who does not fear God. He responded with disobedience. He responded with brashness. He responded even with a blatant insult against this God. When you do not fear God, you will have no problem disobeying Him or even striking out against Him. 
Pharaoh not only would not let people, would not let God's people go, but he tries to show that they really are his people by changing their workload. Pharaoh would put an end to all of this talk about the people leaving Egypt. He would make the people so busy that they have no time to talk of such things. In Egypt, bricks were made by mixing chopped straw with the red clay of the Nile. And the straw helped bind the clay. It it made the clay easier to work with. Pharaoh now decides that the straw will no longer be provided to the Israelites who are making these bricks of which the buildings in Pharaoh's store cities are being constructed. The people will be required to make just as many bricks, but now they have to obtain their own straw. This isn't just Pharaoh saying no to the command of God. This is Pharaoh declaring that these are my people and I will do with them what I please. He is making clear that he has no fear whatsoever of this supposed God of theirs. It's almost as if Pharaoh says to Yahweh, watch this, let's see what you can do about it. And did lightning come down from heaven and strike Pharaoh dead? Was he suddenly afflicted with some terrible disease? No. Moses and Aaron, the delegation of elders, they leave. They leave defeated. They leave dejected. Pick up the story in verse 10. Verse 10. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten And were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? This paragraph simply speaks of how Pharaoh's new policy was implemented. The taskmasters are the Egyptian men overseeing the Israelite slaves. The foremen are Israelite slaves themselves, but they're overseeing other Israelite slaves. They are leading others in their slave labor. The foremen are the Hebrews responsible to make sure that the rest of the group gets the work done, just as the taskmasters demand. The foremen are the ones being held most responsible. Because the number of bricks being made is decreasing under Pharaoh's new policy. And what's, being hap- what's happening to these Hebrew foremen? They are being beaten. Uh, friends, God is not going to punish Egypt for no reason. God is going to punish Egypt because of the cruelty that they showed towards His children. 
And God will just as much punish the Egypt of our day, the Syria of our day, uh, ISIS, North Korea, any other body politic that seeks to hurt and abuse or even kill the children of God. In this time, God's judgment will come. Mount Hermon, when we get to the plagues, it's important that you remember these scenes. Remember these Israelites being beaten under an unjust policy because of a hard-hearted king. God is not a God who delights in judgment. He prefers mercy. But He will not watch His children be abused and not bring justice. It's now under this suffering, the foremen of the Israelites come before Pharaoh to plead their case. Building projects were huge in ancient Egypt. A Pharaoh's glory was tied to the building projects that were accomplished during his reign. So when construction slowed down, that was a big deal. And now here are these foremen coming before Pharaoh seeking a reversal of this new policy. Look at what happens beginning in verse 15. Verse 15. Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Two observations to be made there. First, see how unmerciful Pharaoh is. These men have a reasonable case. Common sense tells us that the number of bricks is going to decrease under Pharaoh's new policy. Moreover, these men were bearing the marks of the beatings on their own bodies. And yet Pharaoh speaks to them of being idle. If they have time to talk about leaving Egypt to worship their God, well, that is time that could be spent doing more work. And so Pharaoh has no mercy in his heart towards the suffering of these people. But then the second observation is how these four men now speak to Moses and to Aaron. They actually call on God to look upon Moses and Aaron with justice and to bring judgment upon them. So quickly, they have lost faith in Moses. As quickly as they embraced Him as their leader, they are already now rejecting Him. He has not led them into freedom. He has led them into greater suffering. 
They say that Moses and Aaron have made them stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Moses and Aaron have given Pharaoh and his men even more reason to look down upon them. They say that Moses and Aaron have even put a sword in the hand of the Egyptians because now they have reasons to torment and kill more Israelites. If you're not making your quota of bricks, the punishment just might prove to be death. Mount Hermon, it's so easy for us to turn against our leaders when things are not going well. By nature, we're all pragmatists at heart. We, we want what we want when we want it. And when our, de- when our leaders deliver what we want, when we want it, we like them. And when they don't, we are often tempted to quickly turn against them. And yet that's not how it ought to be. History shows us that sometimes a a godly, faithful leader can be in power, and yet God choose not to immediately bless. History also shows us that those leaders who simply help people to get what they want when they want it are typically leading the people in a poor direction. When political seasons come into our country, what do we see the politicians do? They promise and they promise and they promise far more than they can actually deliver. Those politicians who call for what people really need, greater self-responsibility, higher standards of morality, greater sacrifice, they seldom get elected. They are rejected in favor of the politicians who can supposedly bring you an easier and happier life. When we think about leaders, whether it be in the home or in the church or in the community or in the state or in the nation, here is what we are to look for first. Faithfulness. Will this person be a faithful leader, a leader of integrity, a leader willing to humble themselves and look to God? If results right when we want them is everything, Moses was a terrible leader. Here were the immediate results of Moses' leadership. Greater suffering, greater hardship, greater tension between Pharaoh and the Israelites. But what makes Moses a great leader and not a terrible leader is that in this situation, he did not turn away from God. and He did not reject God. He got on his knees and he cried out to God. In his confusion... In his honest discouragement, in his desperation, we see Moses making himself low before God and calling upon Him. And though this is only the first time we're going to see Moses doing this, it will not be the last. We're going to see this become a pattern in the life of Moses. Oh, that God would give us more leaders who know what it is to be on their faces before God. Poured out and empty ready to hear from Him and to follow His Word. Look at how Moses responds in verse 22. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have You done evil to this people? Why did You ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But don't miss those first words. 
Moses turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. Mount Hermon, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tribulations, we will always be turning. Every day and every choice you make and each attitude that you have, you're always turning. You're either turning away from the Lord or towards the Lord. Right now, in this season of life, in the midst of whatever is happening with you, which direction are you turning? Notice that Moses has a solid understanding of the sovereignty of God. He doesn't say first, O Lord, why has Pharaoh done evil to this your people? No, he says, why have you done evil? Why have you brought this hardship upon us? Moses understands that this negative turn of events, including the suffering of the Israelites and the beatings of the foreman, they're all a part of God's ordained plan. Yes, Pharaoh gave the orders, but God has written the script. Moses then acknowledges that Pharaoh is the human agent doing this hardship, bringing this evil upon God's people. He says to God, you've not delivered your people at all. And I love the fact that Moses, like David in the Psalms, doesn't try to hide his feelings from God. He doesn't put on a show. He puts his feelings right out there in his prayers, knowing that God knows his heart and we can't hide our feelings from God anyway. I think God loves earnest, authentic, heartfelt prayers. There's never an excuse for being irreverent. There's never an excuse for being bitter. But we ought to be authentic in our prayers. When you pray, do you pray like this? Do you tell the Lord how you're really feeling? Do you, like Moses, know what it is to pour yourself out before God? Until you do that, I wonder if you can know what it is to have an intimate, meaningful relationship with God. Do you know this kind of fellowship, this kind of communion with God? What did Moses need? He needed patience. He needed to wait upon the Lord. God was calling on Moses to trust Him even when it looked like everything was going the opposite direction of what Moses had expected. And Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you are trusting God's promises that He is with you. And you are trusting God's promises that He is working all for your good. But honestly, right now, it looks like everything is the opposite of good. Maybe right now you look around and it doesn't seem like God is with you. Maybe it seems like everything's falling apart. Friends, it's in those moments that our faith is truly tested. It's in those moments that we learn the fiber of our faith. Is our faith real, God-given, persevering, saving faith? Or is it a puny, man-made faith that cannot last through trials and will not save? It is when your faith is put in the fire that we find whether or not it is true and solid and lasting. I have one last exhortation from this passage, and it's this. 
You see, Moses has, has just come from Israel, sorry, come to Israel, and he's declaring to them a way of salvation. If the people of Israel will follow Him, then through Him, God will bring them out of their slavery to Pharaoh. He will take them into the promised land. But this is clearly a picture of a more important and more lasting salvation. Because Moses here is a shadow of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like Moses arriving in Egypt to the Israelites saying, follow me and I will lead you as God's Savior into the promised land, Jesus has now come into this world and He has declared to each of us that if we will follow Him, then through Him, God will lead us out of our slavery to sin and into the promised land. But Satan is a wily foe. Don't forget that Pharaoh is wearing the sign of the serpent on his very forehead. Don't forget that we've already seen that Pharaoh's actions in the book of Exodus are under demonic influence. And when Satan sees Israel gathering around Moses, ready to follow Moses, he begins to do everything he can to turn them against Moses. The devil doesn't want the Israelites free. He knows this is the people from whom the serpent slayer is to come. He wants them miserable and he wants them ultimately destroyed. And so the devil is behind the scenes here. He's doing what he can. If they're going to follow Moses, he's going to make their lives harder. He's going to make their suffering increase. He wants to turn the people against the Savior that God has provided for them. In just the same way, when a person begins to consider Christ, there are forces in this world that jump into action. The devil, through his demonic forces, will will throw all kinds of things into the path of people who are considering Christ. Anything to keep them from following Him into salvation. I wonder if there's anyone here And you're trying to decide whether or not you should really embrace Christ and follow Him. You see His love for you when you think about His death on the cross for sinners. You've heard that Christ can set you free from your bondage to your sin. You have heard that Jesus can lead you into the promised land of heaven but you're also beginning to see what following Jesus Christ might cost you. Maybe you don't want to be free from all your sins. Maybe you're like Augustine who prayed, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Maybe you still want to cling to some of your sins. You you don't like the idea of laying them down in order to follow Jesus, and yet that's what it costs. You can't have Egypt and the promised land too. You must forsake one to have the other. Maybe you look around at our world and you see Christians being exiled and imprisoned and raped and beheaded and brutally murdered. And you're wondering whether it's worth the risk to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Maybe you see in our culture how following Christ can increasingly cost you relationships, cost you a job in certain settings, put you in difficult conscience situations that will make your life hard. Dear friend, if that's you, then you're at this moment exactly where the people of Israel are at the end of chapter 5. They have a choice to make and you have a choice to make. Yes, following this Savior might mean suffering. Let me correct that. Following the Savior will mean suffering. It will cost you to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What did He say? But take up your cross and follow Me. But Jesus is the only way to salvation. There is no other way to the promised land. There is no other Savior that God is going to send for you. The only way to true freedom, true life, true eternal joy is through Jesus Christ. He is the only way to peace with the God of heaven. So count the cost. And make your decision. And don't let the devil and all his wiles dissuade you from following the Savior that God has sent to you. May every one of us in this room, men, women, boys, girls, let us follow the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him alone. And He will take us to heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we ask for Your help now. We don't want to be simply those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be among those who possess faith. Even when it's hard, even when following Jesus means sacrifice or suffering, even when it costs us. Father, let us not be so quick to lay our faith down and take another path. But let our allegiance to Christ be rock solid. May our faith be a God-given, Spirit-filled, Christ-upheld faith. Father, if there's a person in this room that does not know our Lord Jesus Christ, would you save them this morning? Would you help them to sense the weight of their sin, how their sins cry out against them before you? Father, would you also help them to sense the glory of Christ and how He is an all-sufficient and perfect Savior for sinners. Would you bring them to cry out to You, to follow Christ. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.